0: Welcome folks to the academic operations podcast. I am really excited today to welcome Kara Monroe, former provost at Ivy tech. I've had the chance to interact with Kara over the years. She has her own podcast and she just knows the higher ed space inside and out is is really a leader in the space. And we're really excited to welcome her today. Welcome Kara.
1: Hi, Justin. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: So Kara, I'd love to start, you know, big conversation topic today, I'm hoping to learn a little bit about the way you're thinking about curriculum and and really the the way the curriculum is changing in higher education. So, you know, curriculum can only be updated and innovated as quickly as the institution is actually able to manage all of these back-end processes that contribute to investigating, proposing, and evaluating, and and modifying these new curricula. I'd love to learn a little bit about, you know, why streamlining these processes is, is really important and the way that you think about the curriculum life cycle and and the way that it should evolve in, in higher education administration
1: sure well I'm going to start off in a way that that might put some academics at a little bit of uh, of disease and I don't mean to do that but it, it's the best analogy that you can find which is that your curriculum is your product catalog it is what you sell to students to employers to your state to whatever board of directors and funders you have no matter the the type of institution you have your your course catalog represents your product catalog. And so When you think about how companies innovate, they innovate on their products and on the way that they deliver those products, which for higher education institutions is our courses, the way that we package courses together into curriculums, and then the services that we wrap around students, often that we don't talk about much in our catalogs, which is something we should probably change. We should probably talk more about those services and how they integrate into our courses. And so it's important to try to think about how you get information about how those products, how those courses and those programs are serving you as an institution, serving your students who are your customers, serving your faculty who are a part of your your supply chain, and the places that your students go after they graduate, which are also a part of a part of your supply chain and your demand chain. So it, it's a I'm not an economist by any stretch of the imagination, and that's about all the economics references I'm gonna make, but it's important to understand that there are a lot of interlinking parts there. And so the more streamlined you can make that process to keep your curriculum up to date and to evaluate it and to react to that evaluation and to try to get proactive about how you analyze your curriculum, the more nimble you can be as an institution and the more responsive you can be as an institution.
0: My space is is the startup space. And they always say in the startup space that the only thing that matters is to make something people want. And they always talk about in the early days of entrepreneurship, product market fit. Are you building something that your consumers really want? And it's interesting how higher ed has sort of evolved into that mindset. I'd actually be curious, based on your experience, you know, looking at curriculum management processes, how have these evolved over the last five to 10 years? You know, you mentioned this sort of consumer centric, mindset and and really thinking about it as a supply and demand curve. And I I love that framework because I think it's something that's sorely needed in higher ed. But I'd be curious about how else you've seen the the evolution of curriculum management over over the past decade or so.
1: As much as many of us in higher ed do hate the business analogy, I do think more and more people are looking at it in that way. So we're at least giving thought to it. If I looked at curriculum processes 10 years ago, they would have been maybe at best the process would have been documented in a Word document that got sent out by the provost or an academic dean, you know, once a year as the sort of reminder of the curriculum process or maybe a registrar, they they get involved in this too, would have been sent out um, usually to the department assistants because they're the ones, honestly, let's be truthful, they're the ones that run our departments and make sure everything gets done on time. And then there would have been thousands of pages of paper, which we thought was awesome because we put the forms into email documents. But now what you're starting to see are tools that actually allow us to view the process. And at my former institution, we went through several iterations. I remember the first time that we said, okay, we're not going to publish a paper catalog anymore. That was mind-bending for some people. And many institutions still publish a paper catalog. That's not wrong. It's not bad. But... That first moment was like, oh my gosh, every curriculum is now online and we can now see it at the touch of a button. Well, then we had to create processes for managing information through that. And as I was leaving my most recent institution, you know, we were implementing new course management software. And one of the challenges that we were facing at that time that we were hoping that software solved is that. You know, our curriculum process is to sort of update things in the fall, get it all set in the spring so that students can enroll in the summer to start in the fall. And... We still had a leaky pipeline. So number one, I was trying to fix that leaky pipeline problem because things would come in in the fall and they'd sort of just trickle out during the spring. And sometimes they get lost. There was one from our visual communications faculty that they'd been trying to get done for about a year and a half that we we just could never figure out where it was. But the second problem with that is that's a really long life cycle in today's world. To have things that can only be changed once a year is a crazy long life cycle. And yes, I know that there are people who are saying, but Kara, there are all these external forces on that too, like state approval process and accreditation approval processes and financial aid approval processes. Yes, there are. I know there are. But the part I can own is the part inside my institution. And I want to make that as short and as streamlined and as efficient as possible because it involves a lot. Of people in an institution. And I want to make that not the thing they're spending hundreds and hundreds of hours on just chasing paper. I want them thinking about how to make their courses better quality, more engaging to students, better meeting employer demands, better meeting workforce demands. I don't want them spending time chasing paper.
0: The evolution of, you know, in higher ed and in many industries from a paper-based sort of workflow process to a digital process that has tracking and automation and workflow makes a lot of sense. I'm actually curious to learn a little bit in your view, Kara, about the process even before we start that life cycle. You know, when we're thinking about what are the right programs we should be offering? You know, there's many different ways, obviously, of assessing student and labor market demand for current and emerging programs. And I'd actually be curious, you know, What sources do you rely on to inform your understanding of student and employer demand for academic programs and even down to the course or maybe the the micro-credential level?
1: You've got a lot of input data. You don't have as much output data as, as you want in this situation. So input data, I could tell up to the hour, basically, what were students, what programs were they declaring at the time that they applied? What courses were they signing up for? What did my registration look like by program, by location, by modality, by all of those different things? So that input data I could get fairly easily. The the midterm data of, or the sort of in process data of, well, how are students progressing in this program and where are they getting stuck? We were working on a couple of big projects at my former institution on that, trying to make sure that that pathway was as easy for students to navigate as possible and that we weren't losing students in that process. The data that's the hardest to get right now is the, the success, the outcome data. So there are a lot of ways that institutions try to do that. They try to do it through graduate exit surveys, through employer surveys, through other types of you know, student and employer retention metrics, we were also starting to look at some wage data from our state. We were a large state institution. And so we were getting some wage data. Um, I'd love to see more states take that on, or you know, US Department of Labor or others try to get that information as well back to institutions to allow them to match up to iPads cohorts and those sorts of things. iPads is an imperfect piece of data because there's always a lag in it particularly for community colleges, which is the sector I know the best. iPEDS is a descriptor of a really small piece of our student population, but it's at least output data. And if we could match it up to other federal data that's available, it's beneficial. It's not the end solution, but it's beneficial.
0: I think this is such a fascinating topic because so many schools are tracking, you know, just starting to think about basic tracking of things like learning outcomes and I know that Ivy Tech was was ahead of the curve on on a lot of these things, at least in putting together and and really looking at this data. But I'd be curious about in practice when looking at all these different data points and making decisions, like what did that actually look like? Because I always, you know, I I speak with so many campuses where, you know, decisions around what programs we're going to offer, what courses we're going to offer is such a political minefield in a sense. And and I'd just be curious about any insights or learnings that can effectively work in practice to look at MC or burning glass data or, you know, say, hey, we should be offering this program and we shouldn't be offering this program. Like, how, how, how did that actually look?
1: We used MC and burning glass data very regularly. We quantified programs into four quadrants, what we called sort of high demand and low demand, and then where our volume of student enrollment was high or low. So if it was high demand but low enrollment, then we were trying to boost enrollment in those and and boost the popularity of those. If it was low demand and high enrollment, we were trying to help students see that you might have an easier time getting a job if you move to another program or something like that. So we were trying to do that on on a very regular basis. You're so right though Justin that this is a political minefield for a lot of institutions for so many reasons. And the the first one is these are these are jobs of people that we work with who we care about a great deal and we don't want to just end their job. You know, one of the things I would have liked to have made even more progress on is making program review evaluative and growth oriented rather than required and punitive, which is, I think, how a lot of people view it. I don't know that we made strides. It was always the atmosphere that I approached it in, but I don't know that we made strides in changing the culture around it as much as I would have liked to, because a, pro, a robust program review process that happens on an annual basis should be the way that that is happening within an institution, and it should take in all of these data sources and help faculty just understand, help the chair or the dean or all of the above, understand how their program is growing, how it's evolving, how it's changing, and to then start to adapt that program to changing circumstances. I, I remember we had a, an old electronics program at a campus that I worked at for a while, and this was decades ago. And we ended up closing the program because we had no enrollment. It wasn't that there were no jobs in it, because there were jobs in electrics, electrical engineering. This was an entry-level engineering program. We just hadn't kept pace at that campus with that specific program. And had the faculty member had more time to realize, oh, the needs are changing in the industries, and it wasn't just from a once-a-year advisory board meeting the faculty member was more than capable of adapting. But all of a sudden, we were faced with a critical decision and a budget crunch year. And that faculty member had to had to leave. That's not what we want to have happen. We want to avoid those budget crunch years by making sure our programs really meet people's needs.
0: I'm a big fan of a book called The The Innovator's Dilemma, which talks a lot about how you know, as an organization gets bigger and there's a lot of inertia You know, in this example associated with programs, it can be very hard to, to shift. And I think one of the unique characteristics of higher ed institutions is that obviously it there, there's a great, I think there's a textbook that I read back in the day called Higher Ed Administration, and it, it gave a very academic explanation of, well, higher ed institutions more or less usually don't fire people and like to make decisions by consensus rather than, than in a top-down way. But I'm actually curious, as you concluded that statement by sort of, you know, recentering the ultimate focus on what does the student actually want, you know, how do you filter out the noise that, you know, I read, you know, like Michael Crow at ASU and ASU and his framework for looking at, you know, these types of decisions and, you know, partnering with, with Starbucks and, and other workforce entities in terms of innovating on curricula. And I'm just curious about how you filter out the noise about what's going on nationally or with the most buzzy institution and, and really making the best choices for your region, you know, or, or institution? What, what does that sort of look like?
1: It's a great question and a, a great example of ASU because ASU has a national reach. That's what their mission is. That's what they wanna do. So it makes sense for them to partner with somebody like Starbucks. I was at an institution that had a, a, a focus to serve the students of Indiana. And so our goal was to partner with the companies and corporations within Indiana's borders and to serve them to the very best of our ability. So I think each institution has to look at who ultimately hires your graduates and where do your graduates want to go once they get employed. I mean, I think that's one question. And I thought about asking this on the application. but You know, applications are always a, they're a a fine line between asking 5,000 questions that you may or may not ever use and letting students finish it in, in, in 30 minutes or an hour or less. And so I would have liked to have asked students, what's your where? What's your dream company that you'd like to work for? Because that aspirational aspect of where they want to go, and you could ask it in advising appointments or other places, but trying to collect and use that data to understand what your students' vision of their future is, is really important. Indiana needs to build entrepreneurs. And we are lagging behind the rest of the country in that area. The interesting thing is, is if you just talk to our students one-on-one, a lot of them will tell you they want to be entrepreneurs. They want to launch their own businesses. They want to do their own thing. You, you, a little more than me, you're a little farther down the path than I am, but you and I both know how hard that life can be, how challenging it can be. So they are, you know, they want that, but they also know they need foundational skills, you know, some basic accounting, some basic business process skills, maybe some computer coding skills, those sorts of things. And so we built a very unique program that allowed them to get an entrepreneurial certificate along with courses in other programs. And they could sort of mix and match to figure out that entrepreneurial pathway that was right for them. And that is an example of how Agencies in the state and organizations in the state came into us and said, "Look, this is what we need your help with." And we built that program for them in about eighteen months.
0: That's pretty amazing. Yeah, the, the entrepreneurship topic in higher ed, I think, is is really fascinating because I got to see my experience in school was. I mean, Columbia did a a, a really solid job of of sort of supporting entrepreneurship, but there's in in, in founder world, you know, there's a lot of at least as a, as a college student, there's a lot of sort of imagery of. You know Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates sort of leaving the institution and, and there's been sort of this interesting universities attempting to sort of bridge that gap in in the curricula you know to, to help support students as entrepreneurs. I also got to see the other side of this where I was fortunate enough where in my last year of school at Columbia I, you know my, my co-founder and I were accepted to Y Combinator, which is a very targeted sort of almost university boot camp for entrepreneurs and they really were what, you know, I always say to folks that, you know, course Dog was kind of a lamb before I went to Y Combinator and then I became a shark. And that was like the, <laughs> because <laughs> Y Combinator kind of fed me the entrepreneurial knowledge. But I'm actually curious about when it comes to creating an entrepreneurship program or something like that, like how do you track the, the efficacy or, or success of that? I, I know you kind of just mentioned this, but I, I just think it's kind of a fascinating topic. Is it the number of entrepreneurs? Is it future out, you know, I think, I just think it's a very, it's a very hard thing to sort of measure in some sense.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So Um, it was a brand new program. It was just approved right before I left. So we, we were just getting it started, but we were talking about things like, you know, how much venture capital did they acquire and (laughs) how many of them were how many of them were still in business you know a year after finishing their first course or their certificate or whatever so we were looking at trying to look at those metrics to understand that there are ways to measure this that again and i'll i'll not knock on ipads too much but ipads again in this situation is probably a terrible example because if you have that entrepreneurial spirit you're probably not going to finish a two-year degree in two years or even in four years. You are going to take a course at a time as you need it to meet your goals and to keep your business running. And so we knew that the traditional measures for success of a program probably weren't going to apply to that program. The higher education measures of success, but other measures of Mm. success really could apply to that program.
0: Yeah, I, I had the chance to Work with a school, one, one of our partners, Saint Thomas. I know they have a really unique, a very high percentage. I, I think it's a, it's like twenty-five or thirty percent of their students actually become entrepreneurs, and the entrepreneurs of all flavors, right? They're not, you know, the sort of tech, you know, founders. A lot of them are creating small businesses in in in, in, in sort of the local community. I think it's such a fascinating topic because I think the the world, and I, I know you mentioned Indiana in particular, needs. Um, you know, more entrepreneurs. But Absolutely. a lot of the times, I mean, I, you know, it's it's interesting because I was so fortunate and lucky that coming out of school, I, I sort of had the opportunity or at least I, I knew that I knew that nothing would go wrong from a financial perspective. I was super grateful that I could rely on my parents, at least for some period of time, if, if anything went wrong. And I, I'm curious about how you would think just off the cuff of about this sort of Challenge where a lot of folks want to become entrepreneurs coming out of school, but perhaps don't have the financial means of doing so or, or, or aren't willing to take on that sort of financial risk. Like how what what sorts of measures do you feel or you know just brainstorming campuses can take to, to sort of deal with that?
1: Where campuses have the ability to do it or or communities have the ability to partner with campuses to do it. Creating business incubators is a is a fantastic idea where businesses can get up and running and get a lot of the back end support services that they may not be able to provide. Like you, I'm not that worried about the financial impact of my business right now. I I can sustain for a little while as I get up and running, but if I were just starting out and I think about, you know, when I graduated from college if I'd had to do this, I didn't have enough money in my bank account to live for a month, let alone you know, the rest of my life, and I know a lot of people that do take on that debt and do it without much thought, and they're courageous and brave and amazing, and I'm not that. But your question was, what else could institutions do? I think one of the other thing institutions can do, and one of our campuses was doing this, is that they were hosting founding events. They were hosting Shark Tank esque types of competitions and they were, they were hosting them, whether they were small scale or large scale, just to try to get seed funding and those sorts of things for those ideas. So trying to encourage people to realize that you're not alone with those ideas. And I think that's the biggest thing to realize that to develop a business, you're going to have to put yourself out there. You're going to have to do it repeatedly. You're going to get told no a thousand times and you mm-hmm. can't let that no stop you. You just got to keep going and, and go get the next no and the next one, because one of them will be a yes. Yeah. Again, yeah. if you've got yeah. that product market fit, like you talked about at the beginning.
0: I just think this is so interesting in some sense, because I think there's, there's an interesting question of whether higher ed institutions are the best at Creating this sort of entrepreneurial mindset in students. You know, I know there are on one side of the spectrum, you have folks like, at least in the tech community, Peter Thiel, who basically pay students to drop out of school to, you know, pursue <laughs> yeah. their startup on their own, who have these very flashy ideas of, of how higher ed, you know, cannot possibly support this sort of like entrepreneurial mindset. And then I see there are many institutions like Stanford, one of our partners, for example, that I know invest extremely heavily in providing. Entrepreneurship really as an embedded service in the institution, and to try to provide the resources like boot camps and accelerators and venture capital backing and, and, and things of the sort. I must say that my personal experience perhaps was more that it was difficult within the confines of at least the college-specific education to, to to really pursue that. But I think part of the reason it's even interesting is that universities perhaps leave. You know, I always think about if Columbia had offered me even a measly amount of money in the beginning for a small percentage of my company, they would have made, they would have made a lot of money and I would have been very happy in in a weird sense. But it feels to me like there's a ton of opportunity to sort of reconcile this, like, Oh, I need to leave college to start my company. And there perhaps are many ways that universities can, can lean into that rather than leaning away from it.
1: I think you're getting to the fundamental question, which we could do another whole podcast on at least one, if not, you know, 10, about what's the value of a college education today. I still believe wholeheartedly in the value of a college education. You know, I also believe that skills pay the bills, but I believe in the value of completion of a college degree, an associate's degree at the minimum. A bachelor's degree is great. Whether you go on beyond that, that is that is very specific to the career and discipline that you're in. But I think everybody can benefit from a certificate, a technical certificate, an associate's degree, or a bachelor's degree. There's not a person I've met yet who lacks any of those whose life couldn't be better if they would have gotten one in some way Mm. from all walks of life.
0: I completely agree with you. And I think what, at least on on the tech side of the world, tech gets wrong about this is I think they look at a very select few institutions when sort of benchmarking the, how higher ed creates opportunity. And I think that obviously there's, a, you know, institutions like Ivy Tech, community colleges, and, and and many, you know, there's a lot of data that I think Bill and Melinda Gates released a really interesting report on sort of the value of higher ed. And overwhelmingly, the vast, vast majority of institutions were providing not only economic value, but social value and, and other sorts of Leading indicators of of well being to, to to students. So I'm definitely I, I definitely would agree with you on that point. Pivoting a little bit, so let's talk about jobs. <laughs> I'd love to learn a little bit about how institutions should be thinking about, or how how from your experience you saw institutions sort of work with employers and and really map curricula to what employers were asking for. So I know you You shared a little bit about the way of looking at job market data, MC burning glass, et cetera, et cetera. I've seen some really interesting approaches, you know that Starbucks as an example. there are There are companies that have popped up like Instride and Guild Education that are you know sort of directly putting. Workers in specialized higher ed programs that help them up level and get more skills, you know, I'd love to just learn a little bit about how you see that space evolving and and, and what you think institutions should be thinking about today when partnering with local employers, because I know a lot of them that are just sort of, you know, they would love to do such a thing, but it's like, (laughs) I, I I think they don't know how to start
1: sure so you know as as higher education looks at what is happening with enrollment today the way that most institutions have to sustain themselves is with adult learners as well as high school students um where most institutions will not be able to survive and and most might be a little bit too grandiose but it's probably not too far off the the track without catering to adult learners, and one of the things that we did at my at Ivy Tech, my previous institution, is a program we called Achieve Your Degree, and um, I you can Google it, Ivy Tech Achieve Your Degree, and what we did was worked with individual employers in our service area. And and so an institution would define what that is for themselves. So, you know, if you're a four-year institution with a creme de la creme accounting program that's working with, you know, the the big four accounting firms you might work with them specifically to do what I'm proposing. But in a community mm-hmm. college, you're going to work with your local employers in your community around what you're offering. And you would just find the the folks in that organization who, who want to help their employees improve their lives through education, and you'd build custom programs for them. And so custom programs don't mean, well, I'm going to build a program that has no English and no math in it. <laughs> it means that I'm going to build a a a program of services that says we're going to come to your plant or to your office or to your hospital one day a week and provide concierge registration and financial aid support so your employees can do it on their breaks or on their lunch hour or something like that and make it convenient. It might mean that we're going to offer your employees the ability to register with that concierge and we can help them navigate your tuition reimbursement program And we can even tell them, you know, if you're an employee of this firm, or I'll use a hospital as an example because they're a good one, um, that, you know, if you're a certified nursing assistant, a CNA, you can register for medical assisting or nursing. And as long as you maintain your grade point average and as long as you maintain progress, they're going to pay for all of it. If you Mm want to register for business, then you have to pay 50% or whatever that employer's needs were. So it's just working with employers on a one-on-one basis to figure out what the educational need is that they're trying to solve. I think what most folks will find if they do that is that those employers care a lot more about just helping their employees improve their lives than putting crazy requirements on it. You know, we had Hmm. a couple of employers that we worked with who wanted to, you know, say, well, only this program and only for this many people. Okay, we'll do that. Um, but we had a lot more employers who like, we don't care what they take. We just want them to keep getting education because we know if they're doing that, they're going to stay with us and we want to keep them engaged and happy as employees and keep them in our community mm. and keep them working.
0: So perhaps a difficult or somewhat philosophical question, like why, and just something that I, as I, I learned more about this space, like I've wondered, why is IB Tech better equipped to provide Whatever skills it is that an employer is working for, than themselves or you know a boot camp that 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 specializes in that. It's interesting to me that in some senses employers have been looking to institutions as like innovators of custom programs rather than you know in some cases creating such programs themselves or you know working with maybe a a, you know sending employer employees to a coding boot camp or whatever it may be. And I just be curious about your 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 thoughts on. Why sort of institutions are are perhaps the right solution to our upskilling or, you know, adult learning challenges in the United States in particular?
1: Well, institutions are held to a set of standards by their creditors and by their states that some of those boot camps are not held to. So there's a quality standard that you should be able to expect from institutions. Institutions that are able to authorize federal financial aid use can also help you make your tuition reimbursement dollars go farther. So we can help students navigate that federal financial aid process, maximize their use of financial aid, and then save you money on your employee tuition reimbursement. We're also in your community, We're your, uh, for, especially for community colleges. We are in your community. We are your neighbors. We go to church with you. We sit on PTA with you. We run into each other at the ball field. So we're just as invested in your success as you are in ours. And, and so I think there's that feeling as well. The other thing to that is that we might not always be the best choice. And what I hope higher ed institutions start to do, and this gets us back to our original topic, is... I hope that higher head institution is also looking at who else is in your space, in your area, providing those areas, and how do you partner? And so we had a coding boot camp in in, in several of our cities, but one in particular, and we were trying to figure out how we took what a student did at that coding boot camp, which was usually equivalent to a certificate, about 12 to 15 credit hours of learning, and then they could bring that in and keep going seamlessly without losing any of that learning, without having to retake any of those skills and keep going in their certificate. So I hope that the the higher ed institution is also thinking about what we call in the higher ed space prior learning assessment to ease that path for students to continue on in their educational process.
0: And how do you see that trickling up to when a student ultimately gets their certificate or receives as a partition of a set of courses they take, you know, they have a specialty in in X, Y, and Z, like, how do you think this sort of packaging of credentials or whatever it may be, like, how did you think about actually aligning that with what employers were looking for? Because I know there's been, there's a lot of discussions about how do you essentially package that learning into something that Is more consumable for an employer or better represents, you know, I know a lot of folks are thinking about co-curricular sort of learning objectives and things like that. And I'd just be curious about how how you thought about that.
1: I'm really interested in some of the developments around these sort of, they have a lot of different names. I'm just going to use the the general term of blockchain types of learning agreements where we're tracking what a student knows in a Web3 blockchain type of format And that's the authorization that they need to keep moving on something. Because my ultimate goal for a student, the thing that made, and I was, I was a good student. I progressed through my academics, no problem, never struggled with it. And what I hated more than anything was redoing something I'd done the year before. Why am I sitting (laughs) in the same course that I've already taken and I've already mastered these skills? For somebody like me, I could have probably graduated from college by the age of 18 if the curriculum allowed me to do that. So if higher education isn't trying to help students move at the pace that's best for them, I think that's the problem. I'm not sure I answered your question. I may have taken this off in another tangent, but higher education has got to start thinking about what's best for the student and what's best for their employer, not what's best for the institution. Because what's best for the student and what's yep. best for the employer is what's best for the institution. And we've got to get to a point where we understand that that triangle has to balance on a point. And we got to find that point of balance for the, the student, institution, and employer.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that addressed my question well. I know just in time learning, a, a lot of institutions are sort of, you know, looking at this model. And I, I've spent a lot of time sort of looking at how WGU and, and, and SNHU think about and have created sort of these experiences for students in a really positive way. I think it it obviously requires a lot of adaptation. Would just be curious to, uh, I know you sort of mentioned blockchain there, and anytime I hear blockchain, my, my ears kind of perk up. And I, I'm curious about, I, I don't know if you're a blockchain expert or if, oh, if no. there's a particular...
1: I like the authentication and the verification yeah. concept behind it. I don't know that it's the right technology for this, but and, and here's the problem I want to combat. You know, in the example that I gave where a student completed, let's say 12 credit hours worth of activity at this coding boot camp, and we might've transferred it in, they don't have a grade for that. It's not attached to a course. Yeah. We transferred in as verified credit. Well, when they go on to their bachelor's degree, unless we have an agreement with that institution where they're going for their bachelor's degree to say that this degree always transfers in exactly like this, that student might have to re-verify that that credit with that new institution. And they might, again, after we said it was okay, at their bachelor's degree institution, they might have to take those courses again. That's stupid, especially if they've been in the workforce and they've been using those skills. And by the way, it was a coding boot camp. That technology probably doesn't exist anymore. Or if it does, it's changed so much it doesn't matter. Like The the old concept of the way we verify credit, it just doesn't work anymore. And I there are a couple of projects that I'm really interested in that are trying to fix that, but... Neither of them are far enough along for me to talk about much yet, but I really want to see institutions stop saying, well, if you didn't take it from us, you don't know it because that's not true.
0: To loop this back around, you know, we, as sort of the final question for today, you know, we, we, this was an amazing conversation The we, you know, the high level topic initially was, was curriculum. I guess, you know, if you were speaking to someone who's an administrator on a, a university campus and. Is there anything related to, you know, curriculum development, what courses, programs folks are offering, the workflow that's behind it that we haven't covered for today or advice that you'd have for folks when they're thinking about innovating curriculum on their campus?
1: One of the biggest eye-openers for me was a really simple process we went through. We had the folks who do the bulk of the curriculum work do a simple time study, and it was very non-scientific. Every time they'd start to work on a curriculum activity... They'd their time. When they stopped, they logged their time. At the end of a week, we just did it for one week during sort of the peak of our curriculum period. We had them submit it. We tallied up the data. And we realized that just in a small segment of our population, not even talking about some of the things we've talked about today, which is how do you get data in and how do you get data out and all of those other parts of the process, just the core administration, we realized it was costing us more than one whole human being's time in salary to manage that process in the way we were doing it. And we had a pseudo automated process. So just take some time and think about it and see if there's some automation that you can make in it or some efficiency you can find. Because more so than anything, I mean, those people were fine doing that, but they were like, I have other things I could do that I would probably rather do and that it would be more interesting to me if this process were easier. So hopefully as they're implementing their new tool, that's what they're doing now. Just ask the question of how could this be 1% better and see if you can make it 1% better.
0: That's it for today on the Academic Ops Podcast. That was an awesome conversation with Kara Monroe. I'm sure we'll be having her back in the near future. Kara, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thanks, Justin. Great to be with you.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Course Dog. We empower academic administrators at more than 100 institutions with an integrated academic operations platform that supports on-time completions and operational excellence with academic and event scheduling, course demand projections, curriculum management, and online catalog solutions that integrate bidirectionally with your SIS. Learn more at coursedog.com.